0: Hello everyone, I'm Devika Girish. I'm the co-deputy editor of Film Comment magazine, and I program the talk section of the New York Film Festival with my colleague, Madeline Whittle. And I'm really thrilled to welcome you all to the final live event of the 61st New York Film Festival. Thank you so much for joining us. The festival's actually still going on, believe it or not. Uh, There's a couple more days of screenings, encore screenings. Uh, We're premiering David Fincher's Killer tonight, so there's still many treats to come. But like I said, this is the final event. And over the last many years, the Film Comment Festival report has, I would say, become something of a tradition, a ritual. Clint and I, Clint, uh, my co-editor at Film Comment, we love bringing together some of the sharpest critics out there with our cherished audience to kind of digest two weeks of movies and share thoughts, uh, good and bad, about the lineup. And we're really thrilled to uh, do that again with you all this year. Now, I'm so excited to bring to the stage today's wonderful guests. Uh, I'll start with my co-editor, Clinton Crude, who will moderate this conversation with me. We have Kelly Weston, a freelance critic, a film comment contributor, and she was on last year's panel, if some of you are dedicated fans. Let me bring a very special guest, Adam Naiman, who is, Adam writes for The Ringer and Cinemascope and The New Yorker and Film Common, and he's actually based in Toronto. He's here this weekend for the festival, and we're just glad to be able to feature him uh, on a Film Comment talk. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, Molly Haskell needs no introduction.
2: Woo! Uh,
0: Molly's, yeah, she's an extremely respected, esteemed critic who has inspired many of us here. And this is her fourth time doing this. Yeah, the yeah. film comment Wrap, So thanks, Molly. You're Thank you. you're an institution of film comment Wraps now. So I'm not doing it.
2: Thank you, Deb. No.
0: All right, so every year when we do this panel, we kind of run down the year, the the lineup and uh talk about our highlights and lowlights and do a little sparring sometimes. We're gonna do all of that today, but we decided that we would structure this conversation a little differently. Uh, We're gonna do what I'm informally calling NYFF superlatives. So we're gonna pose a series of prompts to the panelists and ask them to name a film that fits the prompt. And I'd encourage all of you to also participate in this uh, discussion. If you think of a question or a prompt you want to pose to us, raise your hand. It doesn't, you don't have to wait until the end of this conversation. Let's just keep this you know, as interactive as we can. Uh, all right. So the first one that we thought we would start with, Clint, you want to pick one?
1: Uh, you go ahead. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I thought that we could start by each of us talking about our favorite on-screen moment at this year's New York Film Festival. One moment in all the films that you saw that really has stuck with you, Adam.
3: Really? Yeah. I'm not. I'm not the first person on this side or this side.
0: I know. In the
3: middle. But you're you're
0: our guest in New York, you know. So.
3: Well, I'm still trying to get over about 45 minutes ago a music cue near the end of Maestro that's going to live with me for the rest of my life, not necessarily in a good way, but but. I'll just I'll just I'll just never forget it. But um, in terms of a, in terms of a moment for me, I think that probably there's a montage about I don't know halfway through Richard Linklater's Hitman, wow. which is where I started to feel the movie changing in a sort of interesting and kind of malevolent way. I don't know how spoiler friendly we are here because not everyone's seen all the movies. But if you've read the premise, you know it's about a character who's kind of moonlighting as a as an assassin not really you know it's kind of it's not even really his 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 fake job he's kind of doing it as part of an undercover police operation and all of a sudden there's sort of this montage of regular everyday types and the common denominator between them is they all have something in their life that they would like to have taken care of by contract killer and because the movie is based on a true story there's a certain credibility to it or authenticity to it but it takes it from this kind of charming mistaken identity movie to some about something that's like really bubbled up and repressed and violent within this community and sort of maybe the country at large and I thought that the delicacy that Linklater is able to do this kind of you know very gentle light touch with something really kind of creepy underneath it and suggestive was good. And I thought the movie played that logic out to the end. It's a great great scene, but it's so light that as you're watching it, it doesn't feel like an important moment. Just in retrospect, I thought it was a brilliant little sequence. I didn't see that.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a good one. Clint, looks like you have one queued up.
1: I mean, I think that we might dig into this more a little bit later, but um, the last scene of uh, evil does not exist is something that has completely baffled me and continues to baffle me. And I don't know what to make of it. Um, I've started thinking of the movie as like a beautiful painting that the artist then like slashes at the end with a razor blade. Because I think that's, there's something meaningful there. And otherwise, I'm really having a hard time like understanding what that scene does to the rest of the movie. Um, It's the Ryosuke Hamaguchi film this year. And It is about a small village near Tokyo, a man, a widower and his young daughter are kind of living off the land a little bit. They're sort of like, you know, it's a very rural community, but um, they're living very close to the land, I I should say. And then a uh, corporate entity of some kind decides to set up a glamping site in the in the vicinity of their home and like the community rises up against it and there's a great scene where they do a a uh, presentation or a community engagement right where the uh company comes and presents the idea and then the community just sort of like
2: you've got to say what the idea is glamping, Gla- right, glamping yeah. glamorous glamorous camping explained <laughs>
1: explained on a on a slide with like the words glamorous and camping to get and then like plus and then equals <laughs> clamping um and it seems like it's this the movie seems to be like a study in different cultures like or like country mouse city mouse type of thing happening uh because the values of the urban people are you know. Uh, contrasted with the values of the rural community. And there's sort of a conflict there. And so, and then the film builds to this sudden violent ending that I don't want to give away at all, but it's just out of nowhere almost. And it sort of calls into question all the ideas that I, all the, my interpretation of the film up to that point. So uh, in, in a way, not I mean, directly. Also
0: because the violence in the film up to that point is sort of is not direct, you know, it's like the violence of deforestation or, you know, the vi- like environmental violence or, you know, or the ways in which corporate entities kind of can come and ruin rural ecosystems. But then
1: Well, there's the there's the gunshots in the distance too. Right. You well know, the is a f- yeah. ma-
2: major character in a way. but the deer,
1: um, yeah. The deer is also yeah. amazing. Um,
2: also, I, I felt that, that I, I was going to put that on my thing of things I couldn't get rid of, mm-hmm. things that stayed in my mind I couldn't get rid of, because also you feel that there's been a kind of a, a growing rapport between the Native and the people that have come. And the people that have come, they're the sort of in-between in the corporate ladder. You know, they've got this subsidy. They're, it's all very corporate. Right. And they're caught in between, and, and they sort of reject the corporate uh, idea and are trying to sort of fit in and you f- almost feel that they, that they are making a place for them and this comes as a huge shock. Yeah. I won't say what it is, but, and it's also, it's, it's also uh, very cryptic, you're not sure what it is, because it's not the same, it's a d- t- different time frames in the same, yeah. yeah. There's,
1: there's also like something going on with perspective in the film that I found really interesting. There's, a, there's several shots where you suddenly realize the camera is like attached to a car Mm. Where it's been static, and you're watching a scene play out, and then the car, uh, like the car, pulls out of the parking lot or whatever, mm. and you realize that the camera's like on the hood of the car. Mm. There's a couple, and so they're just it's just a very interesting movie that I'm going to be thinking about for a long time.
0: Uh, maybe I'll go off of what Clint just said. I mean, I have, I have two moments. One of them is early in Todd Haynes's May December, which was the opening night film where Julianne Moore has a dramatic declaration about hot dogs. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. There's the zoom in, and there's this music cue, and then she says, like, there's no more hot dogs. And I thought that that was such a remarkable moment, because when the movie begins, you know, May-December is based on this, like, real-life, inspired by this real-life tabloid tale of a teacher who had an affair with her like seventh-grader student, and then eventually she went to prison for it, but they maintained their relationship. Eventually they got married, had kids together. And when the movie starts, you, you don't know what tone this movie is going, going to take toward this strange and very dark story, a story of abuse and power. And I feel like that one moment immediately sets the stage for what the Todd Haynes take on Mm the story is going to be, which is that it's going to be melodramatic, but it's also going to be funny, but it's also going to be really emotionally raw. Mm. And I just thought that that scene immediately got, you know, it's like, this is going to be a very self-aware movie. It's going to be funny. You know, even though it's a dark subject matter, it's not going to shy away from humor. But at the same time, Julianne Moore is going to make us feel everything. And she does. So... That and then just uh, Clint's description just reminded me of a moment I want to shout out in a movie that is full of incredible moments inside the yellow cocoon shell. I don't know how many people here saw it. It was in the current section by a Vietnamese director, Pham Thien An, and it's his first feature, and I was just blown away by it. It's a three-hour movie that truly flies by because every moment is so beautifully orchestrated and calibrated and so dense with meaning and beauty. And I don't even know, I mean, there's just so many moments in this film that I don't wouldn't know how to pick one, but I, I just remembered that there's a scene, there's a funeral, and you're watching the funeral, and at some point you realize that you're watching someone watch footage of the funeral on a monitor and kind of edit it and slow it down. And to me what you just said about the Hamaguchi film there being these perspectival shifts that was an a moment that just made me like sit up and pay closer attention to inside the yellow cocoon shell and realize that it was operating on so many layers and levels at the same time.
1: There's a uh, sorry Kelly I want to get to you <laughs> but I, that there's a moment in that film also and like another different moment that also I think was like a high point for me, is this single shot that tracks the main character and his nephew as they get on a scooter and ride through a muddy village, go down a hill to visit an old man. The kid goes off and plays and the camera stays on the the main character who goes into this old man's house. The camera starts going, zooms in very slowly, zooms into the window as the old man's telling a story about his experience uh, fighting in the war in the in uh, the Vietnam War, and um, enters the house. And only then do you realize, like it's only, it's been one shot. This has all been a single take, and like the entire village was kind of or you know orchestrated here. I think that. Yeah, that movie's, and that's, that is also like a moment where you're just kind of like, wow, this is, uh, I should pay closer attention and not drift off. It is three hours long. It did not go extremely fast for me as it did for you, but.
0: <laughs> you know, what can I on, say? You know, <laughs> <of> <laughs> pedestrian viewers uh, may,
4: may struggle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, Kelly, your turn.
4: Um, I'm really hesitant to say my favorite moment. Is because I guess it's kind of a spoiler, but I'll try to choose my language very carefully. Um, there is a moment in the Catherine Briat film Carousel. last summer. Yeah. Speaking of, I mean, like it, I also like I was trying to find like hurriedly going through the files in my brain as you were talking but it just reminded me when you were talking about May-December like there's a lot of films about grooming this year (laughs) Um, and I mean like that's not funny but it's just like weird Um, and I think like yeah of the films about that I would say obviously May-December is doing something really cogent and interesting and There's another film, like, I I don't want to say loads about Priscilla, because I don't think I have, I don't think I have loads, I just don't have a lot of thoughtful things to say about it, but um, this one, I felt like the... I mean, I guess I like as a concise summary, you know, it's basically about a woman who's kind of like a social worker, a lawyer, and she begins to have an affair with her stepson who's kind of troubled, but um, there's a moment where she and her husband are basically having this conversation and the actress, uh, Leah Drucker, is just so incredible in this scene. Um, I'm so sorry to be like hedging in this way. Like you really just have to to watch it. Like she makes a decision to do a particular thing, and and it doesn't actually play on her face. I think that's what's so fascinating and intriguing about it that it doesn't quite register that she's about to do this thing. Um, and so this sounds quite opaque. I'm not trying to be <laughs> purposely purposely uh, uh, frustrating, but um, that is a scene. I mean, it's also one of um, in the notes, uh, I guess app or document that we had, like that's a scene that's also going to stay with me for a really long time. And um, I I saw it at, um, at a screening, but then I also rewatched the screener just for <laughs> for that particular scene because it's just so well done. Um, but yeah, that's a that's the moment that like I find to be incredibly. Um, Uh, powerful and and indelible and I'm going to be like thinking about it for a really long time.
3: Assuming we're thinking about the same scene and I'm pretty sure just about as well acted as anything I've seen in a long long time, like not just the New York Film Festival framing, but just like any film. And that scene is this amazing example and it's in writing, which is, you know, something that sometimes gets sidelined when we're talking about directing and vision But it's a piece of writing how this character can be completely truthful in -hmm. some ways in the midst of this absolute, deflection and lying because it's like the main substance of what's being said is absolutely incorrect which we know but they are also expressing so many things that are true about how they feel about their partner about their relationship about their life about themselves it's really kind of an amazing piece of drama Mm -hmm. in that sense and and Leia Drucker is amazing just an amazing performance
0: yeah and it's also a moment in which they commit to a delusion I think we can say that and kind of wordlessly decide we're gonna to commit to this lie together, even though we have different reasons for why. And um, yeah, sorry, last summer, yeah. yeah, by Catherine Brea.
2: I didn't like it at all. Sorry, <laughs> I didn't like it. You I didn't? Know. Okay. I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's hard to talk if we can't talk about the plot. But I mean, I think. I th- think. Th- There's no who is this woman? We've shown this woman who's extraordinary in the beginning. She's got so much empathy for this young person that she's telling her how to handle the trial. The girl's been raped. She knows she has clients that are have been raped and abused. She knows all about it. And yet she embarks on this thing and I'm not quite sure why. And there are no consequences, um, really. Not really. Um there's no sense. There's no place for our outrage to go. And then if you think about the last scene, if you switch the sexes, it would really be a very different thing. If you had a man and this, who did what she did with yeah. his stepdaughter and then came back, yeah. and that's the end of the film. I don't know. To me, it's just... But uh, I do. And it's not sad. To, I mean, somebody was trying to make a case that it's showing the bourgeoisie. The, it's not a bourgeois family in that sense. It's not mm-hmm. you know, it, That's what it needed to me because what she does I think is so vile. I mean, you know.
4: No, but I think one of the things that I find pretty intriguing about it is that you have so much investment in this character in the beginning, exactly for the yeah. reason that she said. Yeah. And to me, when you have this particular scene that we're talking about that we can't really say a lot about, it reveals just how um Uh, active her uh, like how strategic she has actually been from the beginning because to me the fact that she deals with these young people who are in these really vulnerable positions and she knows like she notices all of the signs and this to me is somebody who is like actually like targets somebody who is aware that this is a person who is already pretty isolated and um, that is clearly you know it feels like I think the way that it seems to be set up uh, in the beginning, at least, is that, you know, she kind of maybe just falls into this affair or, you know, she's really attracted to him. But I think once you go back and put together the pieces, it feels pretty clear that it's like, like textbook, you know, I hate uh, uh, grooming, but that is what it is, right? Like she really, you know, like manipulates his trust and manipulates her partner. And Well, I, I'm also a bit mixed on the film.
0: I think maybe I like it more than you, Molly, and maybe less than... You did, Kelly. I think so. It's. Uh, I think you know we can spoil it a little, little bit because it's based on a Danish film from 2018. Did called, you see that? Yeah. I did. Uh, called Queen of Hearts, which I saw when it first came out, and I, for me, last summer was such an interesting viewing experience because I was really viewing it as an adaptation. You know, because I was so familiar with the arc of the film, and the funny thing is that the film is extraordinarily faithful to the original in terms of script, even dialogue. Mm -hmm. But it still feels like an entirely different film in the way it's acted and directed. Like Catherine Breyat's style is much more muted, a lot more room for ambiguity. The Danish film is very passionate in many ways, in, in the sense that the erotics are very passionate, and then the abuse and this woman, the lengths to which this woman goes to protect herself Mm -hmm. and the effects it has on the boy are shown with a lot more you know it's like emotionally gutting Mm -hmm. and Breyat really plays with us in in pull you know pulling that back but I think I almost you know I like that the film is not quite more as moralistic and that's what Breyat does you know she she puts us in these like uncomfortable places But I also thought that that made the film a bit boring, you know, the the passionate melodramatic version was more interesting to me because ultimately the questions that Last Summer raises are questions that have been raised for, you know, decades about the nature of abuse and about how we fall into patterns of desire that are bad for us, but maybe we still want, want them and how... How like victims can also have agency. I mean, all these things felt a kind of old to and me.
1: May December tackles the same.
2: Or well, there, you feel there's consequences. Here, there're no consequences. And and you say moralistic, which is a negative term. But moral, I'm I'm just saying moral, not moralistic. Just mm-hmm. having a moral core. I don't. I just don't
4: think it has one. Um. I my last thing I will say because I am sure we have like many more films to talk about is as a you know for my sins, a great lover <laughs> of uh, Um, One of the things that like, you know, as an adolescent, a very pretentious and precocious adolescent, I was so, I guess we can use the word like seduced by her portrait of like feminine sexuality, which felt to me very different from the films that or uh, like you know sort of mainstream American films there's something about the way that she depicts sexuality that feels like you know women are often like it's it's very like exploratory and and like venturous and like it's all about curiosity and I think as a kid, like I really appreciated that. however, I think this film to me is maybe a little bit interesting because i know so much about her <laughs> and I had such low expectations I think I went into this film expecting her to you know if I I don't know if we can like curse here but shall we say colloquially like back on her bullshit you know what I mean like just doing something because she's like she's not shall we say she's like not the most politically correct woman in her life or on the screen um and I think it's like it's interesting to you know without bringing in too much extra textual stuff because like we should be pay, being paying attention to what's on the screen. And like considering her comments about Me Too or France's uh version of that, which I can't remember what the name is, but I was quite surprised at how much sympathy she does have for this child. You know what I mean? Like I was like, I her films are far more transgressive than this. And I think for me, this does feel in, I guess, her oeuvre, like one of her more um. I guess, in some ways, like, I guess less experimental in a way. Um, But I was, I think, in part, my uh, real appreciation of this film does come a lot from, like, the acting, and there's something that's so sleek about it and sophisticated. And I do feel like there's a lot of, um, that she, even though there are no consequences for that character, I think that is pretty true to life a lot of times, that there are no consequences for people who have power and in this film anyway, like, I do feel that there's so much sympathy for him. By the end of the film, he's like, you know, you see him as this kind of, like, cocky teen, and then at the end, he's basically a child. I mean, I, again, I don't want to spoil, but there's, like, a particular scene toward, like, the climax, unfortunately, but, like, you know, like, that scene, like, the way that it, the imagery, like, the the visuals just quite, very much position him as, a literal child like an actual baby
3: just just say to kelly's point about brea like this is a filmmaker i've been watching for a long time and i don't think i've ever been bored for like two seconds any of her movies even the ones that i don't like that much but this might be a good prompt about other films or for critics here but like there is something to be said about a filmmaker who's like here is where i am i am not moving i am not moving up to you (laughs) And I'm not even really inviting you to come to where I am. This is just where my movie is. And that's the terms that she has always made movies on. It's the terms that she's always kind of tackled subjects on. Like, it's not late style, it's not stubbornness of age. It's kind of just the kind of filmmaker that she is. And that incredibly bracing, it is what it is position that the movie took, I found incredibly refreshing. Like, not in counterpoint to maybe movies here that failed to do that, but just to the fact that most movies don't even fail to do that, they don't even try. To, to, to exist on terms that aren't kind of flattering or seducing to the audience. So I sort of think bravo, uh, you know, to that. But, I mean, in terms of a movie, as Molly was saying, that isn't moralistic or doesn't have a moral center, I mean, that's not wrong either, which is why it's a very discomfitting experience.
2: I just don't understand how she gets from A to B to C. I, I just don't get it because, I mean, you see her in this sort of rap- comic rapturous scene with her husband, and and then you find out she doesn't have any friends. You're not quite sure why she doesn't have any friends. I don't know. Just so, so that that makes her more isolated. But then I never. I mean, is it is it passion? Is it a sexual passion, or is it, uh, is it boredom? Uh, I mean, what 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 incites her to betray all of her principles, everything she knows about abuse and children to do that? I, I, I just and it's not seen as something that's really kind of preposterous. No. And I don't mean being moral. Of you. <laughs> no, no, you know, no. Well, it's Reductive, true. Did you? Did you, anybody read La Familia Grande? Mm-hmm. That story. that anyway, I won't get into that. But yeah, there's a certain sort of intellectual bohemian um, class that that do get. They just.
0: I'm sure we can we can we can loop back on this. But
2: Molly, did you? Yeah. Well, I just I had two, and they're okay. both endings. Is okay. that all right to talk about an ending? I think so. so we already
1: did a couple, right? Yeah. yeah. We already, yeah.
2: Okay. And it's hard to talk about films without. Um, the, the, the two are um, uh, uh, here. The Bazdevos, the Belgian film about the construction worker who's getting ready to go home, and he meets this Asian Belgian woman who's a, a botanist and also works with her mother in a fast food place. And it's a very—it's a short film. I don't know what, 80 minutes long. And it's just about—it's really about nature in a sort of almost granular way, and the way these two people gradually and finally come together and you don't know that that's going to happen but it does and it's just it's sort of implicit and elliptical and yet there's something almost sort of holy about it this sense of nature and the other one the other ending that I love is the Alice Rohrwacher Watcher film um, The, the Shimera, where Josh O'Connor who I didn't even recognize at first is this British archaeologist in uh, digging up artifacts and antiquities
0: A grave digger, a a tomb raider. Tomb raider,
2: tomb raider. 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 (laughs) But he's a a, a little more grave robber, a a little more high-minded than some of his cohorts. And um, it's a film that sort of mixes dream and and realism in a very effective way, I think. Um, And the very last scene when the cave is closing in and he realizes he can't escape that way. So he he dives into it and you see the image of this woman who I guess has been his lover who's dead. And he's going to meet her. And I just found that incredibly powerful. And it reminded me a little bit remember that film last year, Fires of Love, the vo- about the French couple and the vo- volcanoes? It's like they can't—they they have to go into the volcanoes finally, because that's where they belong in some way.
0: I really yeah. do want to second that scene. Actually, that was on my list uh-huh. uh, of possible candidates. Yeah. Um, on the
4: third, that scene. Huh? So, on the third, that scene. Oh, good. I'm also, because he
0: goes in and it seems the cave has collapsed behind him or, mm-hmm. or that his compatriots. Mm-hmm. Ha, are betraying him. him yeah there and the light goes out and yeah. it's such a beautifully tactile scene and there's fear and also magic you know it's it's really beautiful and I want to say one thing about here I discovered something a couple of days ago so the um Chinese Belgian woman actress oh, yeah. in that film her name is Leo was also one of the editors for Wang Bing's Youth Spring all right so I think maybe we'll move move on on to to the next
1: superlative. Yeah. What's the next one?
0: Maybe we can do best performance. Uh, We already
1: touched
4: upon a couple, but.
1: Best performance.
4: Sandra. (laughs) Both times. Uh,
1: Yeah.
0: All right. Yes, what? Clint Sandra Hewler.
4: Yes. Oh, yeah. God, yes. I don't know her personally. I should say Sandra Hewler. No, yeah. Your your close personal My friend Sorry. Sandra. I thought you meant,
2: Bullock. I, thought you meant a, I, thought, I thought you were talking about Sandra Bullock. Yeah. Yeah.
4: <laughs> um, in both zone of interest, but especially in Anatomy of a Fall, I think. Yeah, I'm seeing
2: her with that. Right? Sure, but she's
4: fantastic in, <laughs> in the zone of interest.
1: Yeah, just trolling you over here. Yeah. <laughs> I I I think that she's very good in Anatomy of a Fall, and I think Zone of Interest is its own. that i would like to talk about
3: the the making because i i did interviews with glazer and everybody really early like even when the movie was at Cannes. and the making of that is so fascinating if people Mm. don't know about the simultaneous cameras and shooting on the original location and every scene in the movie where there's simultaneous action going on in the house there was really simultaneous filming you know for the for the whole time which is wild it's unbelievable especially because the movie is so
1: sharp. I feel like everything is in its place and everything is very carefully calibrated.
2: It, yeah, it's also, it, it's very, uh, you feel like it's a, like a rectangular and, the, and you're in sort of inner prison and there are very few camera movements and you feel, and also the house, it's incredible. I'm, I'm really interested to know that because that house is so, so lit. I mean, you really hear the boards every time somebody walks up the steps. You're so familiar with that house and it has this kind of stealth power of that movie, I think. Well,
3: and, and, and Hewler pointed out, too, when I interviewed her about that before, because we were talking about acting under those, I mean, they are kind of conditions, right? Yeah. But also acting within a conceit and a disembodied director, because Glazer's never there with them. He's like in a bunker with the cinematographer and these five focus pullers. Yeah. But Hewler pointed out, too, thinking about her own performance, I think there's two close-ups of the entire mm.
2: film. Mm-hmm.
3: Like, that would, that would be anything but a middle distance mm-hmm. or a long shot which is why her performance is interesting because in anatomy of a fall the facial muscles get the the workout i like Mm. that movie lesson zone of interest but zone of interest the whole performance is almost indistinct Mm. because you're really never with them anywhere
0: it's almost more uh, more presence than even performance you know it's like a very embodied uh kind of presence and i i think sandra is incredible in both films um I think anatomy, yeah, she's doing more of what we would con- consider traditionally acting. And I thought
1: you guys refer to her by her first name. Yeah, our best mm. friends. Our, <laughs>
0: yeah, our girl, okay, our girl Sandra. <laughs> but you know, I think in Anatomy, what's wonderful is she you really don't for a lot of the film place who she is, which is that did she murder her husband? You know, is she, was she, like, betraying him? Is she a really genuine person? Is she a good mother or is she putting on a show? I mean, she really keeps us on that edge throughout the film without, you know, without, like, sometimes there are performances where... I feel like the actors strive for ambiguity in this way, you know, it's it's this this thing of like being very excessively cryptic and giving you a lot of red herrings with performance. She just kind of is, but mm. she manages to kind of be all these things at once and feel very warm and loving but also mysterious. And with The Zone of Interest, a movie I'm I don't love, I think that she is incredible, but it did seem so much of not the movie, a
1: lovable movie
0: I mean, yeah, but so much of the movie feels like a bit of a waste to me, and so does then the these great you know actors and performances and it's you know it's almost like the same kind of the same problem I have with last summer where these movies are about the banality of evil, which to me is. Do we really need a movie in 2023 that just tells tells us like Nazis were actually evil? I don't actually think
1: that that's what that movie's about, though. Yeah, I, mean, I
4: also don't agree with. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. What do you think it's about? I think that we can have many films about one subject or with the same general idea. I also think the banality of evil is not um, if it's a, if it's, it's if it continues to pop up in our cinema. I think it's probably because we don't get it yet. I think that that's a thing that is true. I mean, I feel um, a zone of interest is in the film that I really was kind of interested by, really, like is a strong term for what I felt for it, but when I saw it at Cannes, it was, you know incredible to me but I have since cooled on it, and I've had a lot of conversations about it that have I think sort of edged me closer to the middle. I I feel like a little bit more ambivalent about it Um, but one thing is that you know I just don't feel that it's fraudulent and I don't think that it's exploration also is like a very little term but you know that is sort of excavation of the way these people are literally like the geometry of it this situationally they are right next door to all of this horror and they are just living in you know this kind of delusion of domesticity and you do get you do see I mean it's like obviously like not writ large it's like barely visible but you see these people like slowly begin to go mad
1: What's remarkable about the movie is that I don't think that they're blinding themselves to the evil. They are a, like the the family, the yeah. the husband and wife. They, speak they, of it know, often. It. Yeah. they know it. They know that it's bad. Like that. They, and the mo- when the mo- her mom storms yeah. out, yeah, they're well, they're not even righteous about it. It's practical for them. For them, they're weighing their like personal ambitions, their career ambitions, what they want of their family life against like forces of history, and that are like pushing them to do like the worst possible things they could do and they decide to like choose their personal
3: ambitions like you know it's not blindness it's compartmentalization that's mm. sure. what the movie is about and compartmentalization is rooted denial. in and, and yeah and denial this is rooted in historical specificity to the point of being yeah. built and reconstructed so when people ask what the movie's about you used a great word kelly which is geometry mm. geometry yeah. space and what the movie is about is it's about match yeah. cuts as you watch a guy open and close locks For 47 consecutive discrete shots, because what is he trying to keep in and trying to keep out? It's about what does it take to actually build something on that space and build it in such a way that you're proximate to it without looking at it. And compartmentalization, I mean, the only thing that's more banal than evil is the phrase banality of evil. Mm -hmm. If a movie is specific in how it mounts that investigation, because this is a movie that I think people were like, this is going to get really, really overrated because it's so powerful and kind of empty. Right. I think the criticisms of it are kind of empty too. I don't think it's a fraudulent movie yeah. at, 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 yeah. at all. It's
0: incredibly well-made, incredibly well-designed, and it evocatively maybe captures what it's like to be, I guess, a Nazi. But to me, I'm also like tired of so much screen time being wasted on the people who did bad things in history. Like, you know, I... I get it. I get it that, you know, they were able to not just keep out the evil, but they were, you know, it was part of the fabric of their lives. Like, living right next to the Holocaust, it was part of the fabric of their lives. I understand how evil people do evil things, how historically evil people have done evil things, but I'm just kind of, I would like more screen time to be devoted to the people who suffered or who fought back and how did they build but the architecture that's... and geometry of their lives
4: my thing too and and i don't want to like cut anybody off if we want to talk more about performances but i do think this is like actually a great place to jump into molly's question about the tyranny of plot maybe you will articulate it better but my one last thing i guess about zone of interest is that i also think that we when we say things like evil and monstrous, like, those things are true, but one thing that I do think is missed sometimes in some of the criticisms about this film, where it's like, oh, like, these people are evil, you know, they did this horrible thing, is that this is, like, quite within the realm of human capacity. I don't think that we should in any way, like, feel, you know, empathy or compassion for these people, but I also don't think that that's all cinema should do. And I think sometimes, at least in this film, which are asked to confront is like this level of normacy, normalist wow why can't i speak <laughs> like just how you normalosity know,
1: yeah
2: normalosity
4: of these people and they are quite like mundane and it's easier to do like obviously i know what you're saying but like it, to me that doesn't um negate its worthiness as, oh, Sorry,
3: go ahead. no but to devica's point and to molly's point too because molly sent us a really great email which was like you know is you know is plot tearing like the tier- and Beatrice Loise is a terrific writer, wrote this for the New York Times recently, too, about all the films she saw at the New York Film Festival that are either liberated from the tyranny of plot or don't bother or abstracted. So when you said you want to see the people who aren't them, have people seen the zone of interest? Mm-hmm. One of the most interesting things about that movie that's hard to understand and miss it unless you hear the director talk about it, is the thermal camera, mm. which shoots the little girl who is acting as a force of resistance. Yeah, that's what I felt, yeah. And for what it's worth, Glazer said, what he told me is that he would not have made the movie without that character. Mm. Which Mm. is, and the idea that no one can see her In Mm. the world of the film that you literally have to use a 2022 camera to see her and to register her in the pitch blackness that she's working in. I'm like, we're. Explain that to
2: me because I I think that's a terrific sequence, but it's it's like a grotesque fairy tale with her.
3: She's sort of meant like as this kind of very industrious Mm. gathering little creature basically a little girl who's sort of outside she's She's
2: sensing things she's sensing
3: things she's finding things it's a very very non-heroic in some ways like non-decisive form of resistance and help and he says that that character who's rooted in a real historical figure that he found as the Hess family is as everything in the movie is down to the wallpaper he said he could only make the movie with that balance and you can say that that's good copy and that what Glazer's really interested in is the remove. But like, I was so dreading this movie. I'm like, God, the guy who made Under the Skin is going to shoot in a concentration camp. Like, I'm going to hate this. And the restraint that he showed and I think the conceptual rigor of it is at least worth wrestling with more than dismissing. And I think that thermal camera scene is a way of talking what Devika wants to see, which is what works against those forces and also what Molly's talking about, which is pure abstraction. There's no narrative function to those sequences, but conceptually they fill in a big gap in the movie and keep it from being, to me, just empty, voyeuristic, yeah. uh, evil. To I me. mean,
1: the story here, though, is history, right? Because we know what's going to happen. Yeah. So and so, like one of yeah. the one, I don't know if it's a joke, but you know, the family keeps talking about like, oh yeah, next, you know, we'll we'll be here for years, and like, and as we're this is like our permanent life.
2: Well, she's like gone up in the world here. This right, is, you right. Know, they, you know, they, They've risen socially, so she loves it. You know, she's no, no way she's going to leave. I mean, that, that's sort of this dark humor to it. You know, yeah, and they're and, talking uh, and she about loves bossing around servants. She's never done that yeah. before. but
4: you know? I mean, they're also talking about just like you know, I want to go to Italy, like can or Portugal or something. She's right. like, can you take me to this place? And Blive. I mean, I guess, yeah. slightly. I guess to Devika's point, like my feeling too is like, I think. I don't necessarily, for me, and I'm not saying that this should, I'm not saying this in a prescriptive way, but I don't necessarily need to see the violence and suffering in the concentration camps, especially because we
2: Are very familiar. We hear
4: it, but we're also very familiar with that imagery, and I feel the horror already. Like I don't like. There's like this ghostly specter, obviously hanging over this film, that makes it incredibly eerie to watch. I mean, I I, you're sitting in that discomfort for about two hours, and I
1: yeah, which for me, like the weakest part of the movie, and Adams uh, actually talking about compartmental compartmentalization kind of made me rethink this a little bit. But for me, the weakest part of the movie is when. It flashes into the present day, and you see the museum. And the museum is so compartmentalized because these are images that have been that are so common and so banal. Yeah, they don't really have uh, the, the meaning that you know that I think. And I wonder now, based on what Adam's saying, like whether or not I need to think like, well, maybe that's the point.
2: Like they're it behind is. glass. This is what we're not seeing in this movie. Right. You know what we see in every other Holocaust movie. Yeah, yeah.
0: I I do feel like I do wrestle with this choice to make, you know, choose these people as the protagonist. I mean, this movie is based on a Martin Amis novel, we should say, or or like a a part of that novel.
3: One line of a Martin Amis novel. He cut the entire novel out except one line.
0: I I feel like to Kelly's point, like the mundanity of it makes you realize that, or it makes you think that they are human. But, you know, I don't think I felt that way. Um, And I think sometimes movies like these they they take you on a journey where you ultimately obviously don't relate to these people, right? The movie is also yeah. framed and shot in a way that you cannot have any connection with them. Mm. So it's also kind of easy to think of these people as very different from who we are today, I think. You know, so at, by the end of the movie, we were like... Mm. You know, these, yeah. these, these are like these stick figures of history and they're so vile and there's like all these sounds coming in from their surroundings. And I mean, I
1: disagree, it, especially, I mean, like, I think that it's about like these compromises that people make yeah. and, you know, everyone makes compromises. So in that sense, like, these are just
3: like really big compromises can i propose a banality of evil performance and for the, for, for the performance thing i didn't see poor things but emma stone still gave the best performance oh, i've seen yeah. in the curse which is the the, the 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 nathan fielder safety thing speaking of the banality of evil and stick figures of history and the worst people in the world i don't want to talk about it because i really don't want to spoil it for people
1: I think the first. Th- so we've only seen the first three episodes yeah. of this, and it's actually screening tonight. I think. But but Emma Stone. A- a- Emma
3: Stone is incredible. I just want to say that.
0: Why Emma Stone in the curse? Like, what's she doing there? Tell well, us Na- a little about.
3: Na- Nathan Fielder is a non actor who's brilliant. <laughs> who's whose brilliance, which I think is real, is predicated on playing a version of himself. Emma Stone is obviously not a non actor. She's a really good actor. Well, in this movie, that, or in this show, don't you think he's kind of like. He's different. He's a different...
0: Tell us us what happens because most people haven't seen it. The curse about
3: two terrible people who are making a reality show trying (laughs) to sublimate their terribleness. The reality show is being directed by another terrible person played by Benny Safdie. So uh, another
0: movie about real estate.
3: Yeah, another movie about real estate and about building model homes. It could double bill... You could double bill it with Zone of Interest, honestly. (laughs) Because... Because it's it's shot at that same clinical remove, it's like it's taking place underwater. Every episode felt to me like it was seven hours long when it was one hour long. Compliment, not put down. And uh, the thing about Nathan is that if you if people watch the rehearsal, I know Richard Brody's not here, but if people watch the rehearsal. People watching Richard Nathan,
0: Brody in the room Nathan, with you with right now, now, Adam.
3: Um, <laughs> Whatever you think of Nathan Fielder, his shows are about the idea that Nathan Fielder controls reality through television. And here his character has absolutely no power because the TV crew doesn't like him. And they film him behind his back and they're editing him to look bad. He's completely emasculated by the structure that in his own shows he controls and if the you have fo- any- the focus group is like can he just like go away yeah. like less of him so for anyone who has any investment in Nathan fielder which is surely some of you it is a very interesting show and it also has that ugliness like visual ugliness more ugliness that's like the safty trademark so two great tastes that taste really awful together in a good way and emma stone is just very funny and daring and brave. I want to hear Kelly talk about poor things cuz I haven't seen it or you guys talk about that but I'm I'm on team stone for the TV show for. Well,
0: sure. let's finish the kind of uh, maybe performance call yes. out and then and then we'll get into poor things. Yeah. Kelly Rustin,
1: we we're going to fight. <laughs> but can I can I say a performance? Yeah. I'm gonna say Bradley Cooper in Maestro. I know maybe that's a little underground, and maybe like
3: not everybody is
1: on board with this
3: one. It's
0: a bold indie choice, <laughs> that is bold. really dark, yeah, really
3: against against the grain. It's like when you kept yelling "rain it in, rain it in" while right. not raining. In I think that's I think that's what I loved so much. About it. It's the most
1: insane performance I've seen in a very long time, and I kept think I kept, I kept describing it afterwards as like it's like a very realistic biopic with, like, uh, human characters, but then, like, Animal from the Muppets is the central <laughs> character.
0: Wait, that's exactly what you said about Oppenheimer, and you described Einstein as the Muppet.
1: Oh, well, I, I you know, I I use that, that's my, one of my pet You're comparisons, right? apparently. I don't know, I just thought that, that that, like, the intensity and insanity of that performance made that movie, like, and just like the go-for-broke filmmaking at every single scene, really, like, made it enjoyable and a fun movie that otherwise, I think also we, we have biggest surprises, right? I went into that basically being like, oh god, like a biopic about Leonard Bernstein, like this is, I'm gonna fall asleep, but then I was like, wow <laughs> Look, this, this is insane, like what are they doing?
0: Yeah, Clint uh, texted me as he was going into the screening saying, Bach, Mozart let's fucking go <laughs> and then he was like Wow, this movie was actually very interesting and wild. <laughs> okay, Adam, I saw you groan, like put put your hand uh, head in your no, hand when about, he. That said. was
3: something totally unrelated. I was remembering from something. Oh. about,
0: about Maestro. About- <laughs>
3: And I just, I just, I just got out of Maestro, and I think your description of it is is pretty good. And it it is it is kind of going it is kind of going for broke. I want to hear other people's performances.
2: Well, I want Molly's performance or Kelly's performance. Well, you would. Why don't you do Emma Stone because you were getting onto that? At for the, poor out, things.
4: Out of- uh, I will start by way of a summary and and say some positive things about it because I think Devika will disembowel it. But. Um, I basically poor things. It's based on a, on a book, but it's um, it's the latest Yorgos Lanthimos. It's basically about Willem Dafoe. Is this is he a heart surgeon or he's
1: just like a nineteenth century like doctor. steampunk doctor? <laughs> uh.
4: Experimental doctor. Yeah, he's a doctor. an avant garde doctor. Right. I mean, it's basically like it's a revision of Frankenstein, and he yeah, he's a doctor by day and a mad scientist by night and he finds the emma stone character uh this is not a spoiler this happens in like the first two minutes of the film she uh the character has killed herself uh, or almost killed herself and he basically resuscitates her body with the brain of an infant and it's about her, her. own
1: infant that she was carrying right yes
4: yes which yeah. Is. yeah wow yes yeah. i love that reaction that's it I mean the film I think is uh, incredible. I will also say a couple of things quickly about me uh, just to explain this. like I <laughs> and I probably mentioned this before, but I did I did my doctorate on um, uh, female Gothic literature, which is um, Kelly's right, Devika before you criticize this film, I have a
0: PhD) <laughs>
4: To explain why I'm obsessed with it. I just, there is like, you know, the core of the female gothic is basically like a woman trapped in a, haunted or foreboding castle by like this tyrannical, patriarchal figure who's like very dominating and uh, he either wants to have sex with her or exploit her and so she has to flee him. And um, this is like the the plot of, of a female Gothic fiction, but quite often it's really about, um, at least symbolically, it's like about birth anxiety and it's often about how to extricate myself from, um, you know, the maternal figure who may or may not be biological, but really like a history or, um, Uh, lineage of gender oppression and so it's about you know her exploration of sexuality and it's very much within you know uh, Lanthimos's wheelhouse he's like especially him and and Tony McNamara it like you know he has this kind of irreverence for I guess you know sort of Accepted human conventions, like everything's like very silly and um, sarcastic, and and I think the way that you find this character sort of moving through the world and just kind of confused about you know gender roles and how she's supposed to relate to men is like because she
1: has the mind kind of, of a baby, right? I mean, this is but like what's But she's so developing; about like she movie. doesn't
4: stay in the mind of the baby. The baby grows as she grows and gains experience. My favorite thing about this is that it's just fun to watch actors on screen having fun. Like Emma Stone is giving an incredible performance. The actors around her are also like, ha- like Mark Ruffalo is in uh, it's a different, yeah, amazing. He's very, he's mustached. He is like doing some sort of accent that is. Uh, indiscernible, unlocatable, but I think like that to me is like just at like a core level. I enjoy going to a film where it's clear that everybody like enjoyed performing. Also, the, oh, like performing. The,
1: it's funny. There are like lots of funny lines. Like the dialogue is really funny. Yes. Um, I, I I'm not like crazy about this movie, and <laughs> the steampunk elements kind of turn me up <laughs> And like this is also a go for broke movie where like. Every third shot is fisheye lens, yeah. and like
2: <laughs> every third, that's the whole thing. Oh god!
0: I'm gonna introduce a new category: Uh most wants an Oscar. And I think Maestro it's
2: Maestro. Wants. I mean, most yeah. wants
0: yeah. an Oscar desperately, and absolutely Maestro. Maestro, um, Bradley Cooper's performance really grated for me. I'm sorry, Clint, because it was so. Yeah, I mean that's
1: like. That's
0: that's for you that's part of the charm I right, guess right. but it just you know straining you know you want to see you want to see actors be kind of effortless you know
1: What about that scene where he's towards the end of his life when he's in the club when he's sweaty and dancing <laughs> This is like a seed like an image that I feel like is is that's when we were talking about like the like image.
0: prosthetically aged Bradley Cooper <laughs> it's, like, just like an, yeah. it's just
1: like such a strange it's image. and I just
0: want to say that I think Carrie Mulligan is very good in the film as his wife I think that's in that film that's the performance of the film and I, yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting film. I think it's just, like, very overdone. Uh, you know, everything feels very overwrought and overly calibrated. It's a movie about Leonard Bernstein. It's about music. Let us feel
4: the art. Let oh, us feel the song. Oh, there's a great scene with one West Side Story note. <laughs> like, they play one note on a song <laughs> Oh, but they played, an, they
1: played uh, the entire song of uh, you know New York, New York. The Bronx is up and the battery is down, which my three-year-old daughter sings all the time. Which, so I appreciate it.
0: But you know, it just it was it was a little too like buttoned up almost in a certain way, and I have some of the same problems with poor thing. So. Kelly, what the read you just gave us about the movie, about this idea of the female gothic is so much more interesting to me than anything I actually experienced in the movie, which I don't think this is a terrible movie, by the way. I mean, I had fun. It's genuinely funny. It's it has some great design, production design. And I think Willem Dafoe and Mark uh, Ruffalo are really, you know, they they know what this movie is, which is they're not self serious. Who's the guy who
1: plays the general at the end?
0: Oh, Christopher Abbott! Right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah.
1: He's also very good. No,
0: He's these agree and everything. They, they, these, like, there are some good performances, but to me, the movie felt so simplistic at its core. Its idea of femininity and feminist awakening right. is just so basic, and there, I feel like even the things you pointed out right now, I wish the movie had gone into some of those. Uh, pricklier places, it really felt to me like steampunk Barbie. I mean, it really, you know, <laughs> it, it felt exactly like the Barbie movie, but a steampunk version. And that that really just annoyed me because it felt like it was part of the, now the trend of like pop fem- feminist movies, you know, which are about women realizing that they, marriage is property and like what, that they should pursue sexual pleasure. And again, I, I wonder, laughed, yeah. I I had a good time, but I almost wish that The look of the movie wasn't so overwrought and instead the ideas were more complex and there was a little more room for, yeah, just... Something a little more transgressive, you know, even though it's, like, so outlandish, it never felt actually transgressive to me, which is what, like, a woman with her baby's brain installed in her, like, come on, go a little, go crazier with this, you know? It seems
1: like it is going to be really disturbing and transgressive at the beginning, and then it just kind of becomes...
0: No, it's just a a woman traipsing through the world and learning what it's like to be a woman, you know? And um, I will just say that even though it's not really a fair comparison, but... I love the movie Orlando, My Political Biography by Mm. Paul B. Preciado. And I think that's a great movie about what it means to be a woman or a man or just what it is to experience and to learn gender, that Mm. you learn gender through art and through your encounters with the world. Paul B. Preciado is is a trans scholar and filmmaker, and so this is his first foray into filmmaking. And he kind of adapts Orlando by Virginia Woolf, but actually assembles an ensemble of trans people of different ages and shows how they are they all relate to this novel or the various entry points they find into this novel which is like an early queer and transcoded text so I feel like it's kind of an interesting double bill with poor things yeah.
2: I also loved orlando and um one of my it 's not a perform- i would i would <clears throat> almost say a favorite performance, not really a performance but there's one character and the, the sort of the chubby trans man with in blue remember him with the rough anyway he he, he occupies it 's fairly spread out i mean they're all they all have their moments, but I loved him, and one of the things um he he they each tell their sort of autobiography and he talks about how he, was want to, he doesn't disavow what he was before. And this is what I loved about it. It's so generous-minded. Film. The film is so generous and encompassing and not at all polemical or ideological because it's really about fluidity and about change and how, how life is a journey for everybody. And I mean, I just think there's something so powerful about that and, and this particular performer. Um, yeah, but um, so now I was going to say, we, we haven't talked about the one that you like and I didn't much, The Beast. Okay, so this to me is a Barbie analogy. Okay. okay, okay, okay. This is a French intellectual version of Barbie in reverse. She starts as a woman and she ends as a doll. <laughs> and you look at her the whole time, this perfect face, just like you look at um, Lea Seydoux. Yeah, Lea yeah. Seydoux the whole time, just like um, in Bar in the actual Barbie. Anyway, I'd love to hear your. Can you Molly can you like tell
1: us about what the beast is and yeah. what kind of do it?
2: Oh okay so um it's a time travel the the beast refers to the henry james the the beast in the jungle though only tenuously i think because first of all in the henry james story you only have one lifetime you got to get it done then you don't you don't get to go back and forth in in eras and also i mean maybe this is too literal minded but in the james the character is waiting for something wondrous to happen, not something terrible. I mean, it, it is terrible, but he doesn't think that. I mean, all his life he thinks it's going to be, I mean, spectacular, but never something terrible that he's, he should be afraid of, whereas with her, the whole theme is her fear of love. And I, I'm not going to really describe it at great length because I just, um, I didn't stay with the whole thing. <laughs> okay, so on, okay, on that
3: point, to, to, a, to what Molly just said, Okay, I told this story at TIFF about walking out. Can I? Yeah. <laughs> so I was, I, I love The Beast. I wrote about it for, for, for these guys, for, for film comment. But I was watching The Beast in, in Toronto with two friends of mine. And then a stranger on the other side of us walked out. And I thought at the moment this person walked out, I thought, Leia Seydoux has just woken up naked in a tub of black goo and been instructed to go to a nightclub where it's going to be 1972 for some reason. And you're walking out of this movie? <laughs> And I thought, where are you going? <laughs> what do you have to do at this juncture? So that was one. And then someone else walked out with three minutes to go. Oh, after two hours and 40 minutes. And I was like, this is called pot committed in poker terms, people. <laughs> you are not leaving this movie after two hours and 37 uh, minutes. But it was, there were a lot of walkouts. At
2: well, trial. I mean, I, I've, I love Lea Seydoux as an actress. I've always loved her. But what she usually does, she's usually not. a sort of realistic setting, and she sort of she's on, on, she lights up, she illuminates. But here, I mean, it is like watching Margot Robbie in da Barbie. You're watching her face the whole, whole time, and very few actresses can sustain that. And she even does a scene, her husband is a doll maker, and he makes all the dolls with the same face, unlike Barbie. He, all of his dolls have the same face, so people can impose their own ideas on them. And she, she gives him the doll face, the neutral doll face, but it's more or less the same face. We've been watching all the way through. And, I mean, yes, I mean, I'm sure there's some sexy scenes, but I, to me it's just, <laughs> mono, it's just monotonous. I mean, I, I found that, anyway, monotonous.
3: Well, I think that he's a really interesting filmmaker, mm-hmm. Benello. Yeah, I don't think we mentioned that it's a Bertrand uh, Benello. Bertrand oh, And yeah. just the way that he's played the last few years. I don't know if anyone saw this film, Coma, which was at the New York Film Festival last year, and then almost nowhere else.
0: Adam and I are Coma Heads.
3: Coma, coma Heads, I love Coma. I wrote about it for Cinemascope last year, and... He's playing with tropes and tendencies of horror. And I thought that this movie really came alive when he kind of commits to being frightening, which is not the hardest thing in the world to try, but it's a hard thing to do well. And the people who hadn't walked out at TIFF, it's a lot of walkouts, by the time he goes into this very long, very Lynchian suspense sequence towards the end, with like 800 people in the theater, you could hear... A pin drop just mm-hmm. from the formal control in the atmosphere. They able to conjure but I mean, it's a very strange movie and it's a real love it or hate it proposition. Like anyone who said that that's the worst movie they saw here, I'd be like, fair enough. And, <laughs> no, you know, know. and for me, who I think was just about my favorite thing that I saw at TIFF, mm. you know, I, I think it's terrific.
1: I actually found it to be kind of like uh, inert. And I think because at the heart of it, it's supposed to, there's supposed to be this passionate love story that trans that uh, you know transcends generations and time. And I don't think that he cared that much about that. And so, like when you're watching the movie, like you're just it, it, that's just like a narrative tool to get to these set pieces. And so you have set piece after set piece, and each one seems like provocative and interesting, but I don't feel like they fit together into any kind of coherent understanding of the world or vision of the world especially and like the part that i think is most egregious in that regard is the like lynchian central like this big central section where the lover is spouting uh directly all the dialogue is taken from like a mass murder and misogynistic mass murder which is like an interesting conceit and like provocative surely but it doesn't provoke me to think I don't understand i mean maybe i'm just not understanding he's facing
3: it, contemporary reality
1: well yeah but More then but, to him. but that's it just but then how does that fit into the love story i guess like i don't it doesn't seem to f- cohere with the rest of the film it just seems like this um you know and then like, like maybe
0: the, the love of your life was an incel murderer in a previous life that's i got <laughs> yeah I mean,
1: that that narratively makes sense but there's no i don't understand what he's saying about the world or about contemporary life like to me there's no there's nothing articulated by the movie it's just a a series of kind of provocative and interesting maybe starting points
2: well it's effective AI but that's not particularly novel I don't think right it's the way he he uses it I don't think yeah
0: well yeah so one of the plot sections of this movie the framing Hmm. section is that in the future you can purge yourself your of,
2: emotions. Yeah. of like yeah.
0: traumas you carry from past life mm. and I mean I loved this movie because I just it made me feel a lot of things and not things I can't necessarily even find words for you know mm. I mean, it was romantic it truly truly terrified me. Oh, you felt me. like the
1: romance was like you felt I, about
0: it? I did I especially the first section with the Paris flood I thought there was this beautiful doomed romanticism and this idea of like desire as something that can feel terrifying and like really beautiful and thrilling at the same time. Like you fear love, you fear your own desires. But in terms of what the movie says about the world, what I took from it was, you know, there's these two kinds of control. One is the rational, scientific sense of control. You rid yourself of emotions. You become a really good worker. Nothing in your life will go out of control because you're not emotionally volatile. And then there's fate, which even though you think that you have agency in this life, you know, we're all like puppets in this kind of fatalistic trajectory. And so to me, it was a movie about contingency and how much we need the illusion of contingency, you know, to experience things and to have relationships with people. Even if ultimately there isn't it, any.
1: It sounds like you're saying
3: the exact same thing that I said about Zone of Interest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <no. laughs> I don't just, know. I just, I just think to give Manello his due, because whatever of a fashionista he is, he's a smart dude. You know, a lot of the good writing on the James story itself is about how beyond what the main character is afraid of, the lurking hidden fear in that 1903 novella is modernity. And it is the changing shape of life and the extent to which this will impose itself on people. All the hinge points he's found in the movie, however eccentric they are, tied to that exact theme and create a sort of timeline and lineage going forward that however eccentric or strange it is i don't disbelieve it particularly the draining of individuality and agency and emotion towards this sort of blanded out future i agree with molly that it's not the most original sci-fi trope in the world but it has a certain currency i think as he sort of, as as he stages it i mean it, it's a it's a it's a mixed bag but again not boring
0: so we have some more superlatives but maybe the audience wants to pose a question to the panel at this point.
2: The most shocking moment that you see in a film where it's uh, just a turning point of very drastic. Uh, for example, if uh, anyone here has seen Ferrari last night, that mm. like that kind of moment where just you gasp.
3: I am shocked that I'm on a panel with
2: Molly Haskell. <laughs> <laughs> Shock That's good. all of us. Shocked good or shocked bad? <laughs> <laughs>
3: Disbelieving. <laughs> shocking moments?
1: I mean, I feel like the evil does not exist I you talked about. Yeah. That was quite shocking It is to me.
2: shocking. The Red Jude film, some of that was very startling, especially well, when she yeah. goes on a tear, the sexist tear. She, she's she, she's a, in her guise as a punk male, she goes on and on, and she excuses herself later by saying she, she, she caricatures in order to satirize or something like that. But anyway, it's supposed is, uh, to be satirical. Do not, ex-
1: do not expect too much from The End of the World by Radu Judah. Right. Yeah.
2: Anyway, I think there are moments in that. Um, I think you, one of the questions you asked is about which films are too long and which are too short. We may not get around to that, but this one in, infuriated me because I thought it was so great for so long, and then suddenly I just was exhausted by it. I mean, I felt like I'd been in that Romanian traffic for you know thirty <laughs> days, and I wanted to get out of it. But so, I mean, it was such, it was brilliant. I mean, and, and I think there were mo- moments of um, he did have control of it for the most part. And you have these outrageous scenes, and then you suddenly have the scene where you have the crosses along the road, this c- commemoration of these pe- all these people that have died on this highway, mm-hmm. and it's, it's 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 an incredible moment. So, but I know I think you're probably more 100% on it than I am, so.
0: I do really love this movie, but I also think you being exhausted by it
2: is maybe a nice compliment to I it. I know, I know, I yeah. think so too. I mean, he wants that. He wants to wear you down with it. With it.
0: And I agree that this, uh, the protagonist of the movie is a Romanian, like a production dis- assistant in Romania, so she's driving around to shoots. She's driving for 16 hours a day. The film is based on, one of the things the film is based on is the true. News story of a Romanian production assistant who fell asleep at the wheel because of sixteen-hour days oh. and died. Okay. So, and then, but she has this Instagram filter avatar where she she puts on this filter that gives her a bald head and a mustache. She's, she's like, becomes, an, she
3: becomes like, Andrew like Andrew Tate, Tate yeah. Andrew Tate.
0: Yeah, and then she pretends to be like a friend of Andrew Tate and say these like sexist tirades, but they're parodies, you know. I mean, she's like a feminist who's they're over the top, yeah. yeah. I think that is... The first time that happens is pretty sharp, shocking, but that film is full of shocking moments. I mean, I think the 40-minute long take at the end where the victim of... There's a guy who used to work at a factory and was injured in a work accident, and he's enlisted to act in this work safety video, and he's basically asked to like lie about what happened to him so that the company doesn't get in trouble. And at a certain point in this incredible, long, unbroken scene, the directors realize, the, produ- the company realizes that it's getting harder and harder to like get him to say what they want him uh-huh. to say. So what they do is they ask him to just hold up like green, green. sheets of paper. <laughs> and, and they they're say just gonna... like the Bob
1: Dylan, they're like, I like the Bob Dylan video. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Subterranean Homesick Blues. And, then...
0: and that moment did make me gasp. You yeah, know, oh, I mean, yeah. that really, I was like, the, the Bob Dylan reference, mm-hmm. it was incredible.
1: Kelly.
4: Oh, a Shockless. moment that shocked me. I don't think I. I don't think I have a moment that shocked me. I was shocked by how much I loved Hitman. So wow. I am okay, shocked. I, I well, first of all, I'm not for. I, maybe this is blasphemous. I like Richard Linklater fine. I'm not Linklater loyal or Hive or anything like that. Um, but. I went to this film just with slightly low expectations. I will also say, like Glenn Powell is somebody whose face I could never remember after (laughs) I had seen him in a film. You could tell I—it literally was like, what's that video where she's like, you know, he could be walking down the street right now. I literally, yeah, sorry to that man, but I now know him forever because his performance in this is like really incredible. He basically the setup to Hitman is like this. Well, Molly already said this. Right. We already gave the summary for Hitman, but no, I, didn't, um, I, I
3: you know, yeah, Oh you yeah. just sorry. I, ju- I just I just sound exactly like Molly
4: you're basically we're twins
3: <laughs> we're going to have to do something the on the podcast here. to distinguish
1: <laughs>
4: um, but yeah like he he's hes basically playing this guy who you know he's a philosophy teacher and he's also doing kind of psychology and he has these two cats called Ego and Id which I think is adorable <laughs> <laughs> to me I mean the whole film is also about how he goes through this transformation and he becomes hot but to me the, he is the most hot at the in the first 20 minutes of the film when he like this is my dorm. big problem with the film we're supposed to believe that for the first half he is a right. schlubby teacher yeah, no a teacher has shorts. that body <laughs> no, he was, sorry he's wearing these joints at the beginning of the film that he has to like in order to do his um you know incognito whatever like meet this person who wants to have a hitman the guy the cop is like we literally have to change pants like you can't go in there what is, is
3: the line of the festival when one one character they're talking about him and his different
4: yeah, persona. Yes. And
3: someone's like, I would rip up my IUD. Yes. <laughs> for that version of him. Yes, for
4: yeah. Ron. For Ron. And the other guy is like, I would take your sloppy seconds if it was Ron. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, it is like, interestingly enough, I mean, it's obviously drawing a lot from like, film noir and you know he meets this woman who is you know very much like a femme fatale and she wants to get rid of her husband and I love the film because the film is basically kind of like I mean I love it for many reasons obviously but it's like sometimes violence is the answer and I think that, like, I was like thank you I mean there are there are you know obviously awful cops in this film and the film is like very much towing this line between like is what he he is doing entrapment and it very much like it is entrapment it is entrapment it does not answer that question whatsoever (laughs) that was my quibble with it too yeah um let's not think about it too much but i do (laughs) really think you know he's playing within the film it's like a it's acting within acting in this uh you know like it's very multivalent in this way like he's doing all of these different performances like he's taking this opportunity as a hitman to basically escape kind of from his you know very mundane life although I don't think he is conscious of that he's just like oh I think if I'm going to be a hitman I need to you know tailor my hitman to the person that I'm talking to and um it's just there is something about that film that is just kind of um it's obviously immensely watchable but also incredibly um uh like yeah multivalent and dynamic in a way that was intriguing to me
0: any other shocking moment candidates or we can go There's on a to another. Movies I want
1: to mention, that and I can shoehorn them in here awkwardly because they're not. Neither <laughs> of them are shocking. Like two what? of the most peaceful movies. But do we have another? Let's let's do yeah, another. For the audience. Ooh. Uh, how about? Uh, Eddie. Um, yeah, like, do you have any favorite hairstyles? For me, it's, it's Priscilla,
3: because hair in many Sofia couple of movies are a character of womanhood transitions, and, like, every scene or every hairstyle that Camille has and Priscilla, like, there's a new
2: character arc, and that chair throw in that movie shocked me.
1: Yeah, we didn't talk about Priscilla, a movie that I liked, but I don't think other people liked it very That's much. I, I
2: liked it better than I expected to. I yeah. think it's
4: fine. I like, This is a film that... One thing, because... Okay, I don't want to ramble here because I don't know how much time we have, but I'll do this very quickly. One of the things that sort of stuck out to me while I was watching the film was like while I was watching it was just kind of like, I wonder what this film would have been like if she had made this even five years ago or ten years ago. Mm-hmm. There's something about it that is a bit... Um, it's not hollow but it's just there's every 5 minutes everybody's like she's so young she looks like a girl and then you know, I, again, I don't say this to be funny or, like, irreverent about what happened between them because it was a very deeply abusive relationship, even though I think Priscilla herself is, like, reticent to say that. But I, at a certain point, I was like, I get it. Like, I, I needed more. I, I was there... At every turn, it seemed like the film retreated from what would be potentially dynamic or interesting about this relationship between these two people. And I also, like... I, I think... <sighs> There's a way that this is just like a very conventional film for Sofia Coppola. I I love Sofia like please I to Marie Antoinette, <laughs> like I was there from the beginning. I loved it immediately. Everybody had to catch up to me <laughs> and the other Tumblr girlies. <laughs> and I think like she's such a, you know, she's a she's a really interesting. She's a much more fascinating filmmaker than I think people give her credit for. Um, and this is feels like the kind of film that she did in her sleep or could do in her sleep, right? Like it, there's something about it that feels quite um restrained in a way, as if you know she was very conscious of. And maybe she wasn't, but this is my projection that she was, maybe she's like conscious of the discourse. And so she couldn't, it felt like like in some ways her hands were tied, like she couldn't do you know, mm-hmm. something slightly messier or more awkward or clumsy. Yeah. And so that was my yeah. issue. I have some similar
0: reservations, but Molly, you, you liked it. Well, I liked it.
2: I'm not a huge Coppola fan, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't expect to, and I liked it more than I expected to. I mean, I thought it was Marie Antoinette. I mean, she's this this girl in the gilded cage. But to your point, though, I thought there was something odd. When you first see her, she's at a lunch counter, and she's supposed to be, what? Um, 14. 13, Fourteen. Fourteen, 14 yet yeah. 14, yeah. she's got this manicure of a 25 year old and, <laughs> and, 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 and then he talked after they made it in four weeks and she was having to do be a, you know 25 before lunch and then 14 after lunch so mm. I felt there was this kind of weird thing where she actually didn't ever grow older um, but I don't know it was just kind of a doll's house but it was more visual than verbal I think she's not a verbal director at all mm. there really wasn't much um and and that's what she does. She does surfaces and, and, and the yeah. tactility of things. And I thought it, I thought it was good. And yeah. that I, you know, I just thought. Um, and then, I, I was glad there wasn't a sort of verbal confrontation in the end. She just sort of develops a spine. But you just see this very unequal relationship. And I think you're just right about that. It's totally, she's totally, she has no leverage whatsoever.
0: I mean, I, I I felt the same way as Kelly, which is which is kind of boring mm-hmm. and very official feeling, and mm-hmm. it, the movie was made in concert with Priscilla, yeah, and which I think is great that Priscilla is getting to tell her story, but I do think that there seem to be some stuff and edges that have been sanded down. For example, I read on Wikipedia, you know, the great uh, source of all knowledge, it's that
4: actually, <laughs> everything printed there is fact. It's
0: facts. Is facts. Um, that Elvis put a hit on the martial arts trainer that Priscilla had an affair with, who was seen briefly in the film, yeah. like, two scenes. And I was looking forward to seeing oh, that on yeah. screen. You know, this, like, real violence and all of that. Mm. And it's actually very, even the abusive aspects of their relationship, in, in the moments that it erupts, is like, shook me. Yeah. But everything feels a bit tame and prim and i don't know if it really plumbed even that scene like
4: there's the scene because quite famously i like vaguely remember this so like please like i will cite my sources maybe later we'll put them under the podcast <laughs> but i definitely remember that there's a part of the book where people they're very careful about the language and i also want to be careful about the language that i'm using here but i am almost certain that i read like after he found out that she had an affair, he forced himself on her. Right. And even that scene in the film is, like, not... Re- is, is, you know, tame. It's like she, you know, basically pushes him away and, like, storms out. And then you just have this ending, right? That there... You're, you're right. I mean, I think you're definitely... Not just onto something, you're absolutely correct about the fact that Priscilla had... You know, she, she was very collaborative with Sophia Coppola while they were making this film. And so, in some ways the the kind of story that you tell can only ever be you know
3: I I haven't seen it and this is someone else's bit but it's a big missed opportunity that Priscilla supposedly doesn't end with her on the set making the naked gun yeah I thought that that's that's really like grown-up Priscilla that's where she should do the walk-hard flashback into her life Big
1: mistake. I, uh, yeah, I think I, I agree. I like that movie, and I would like to continue talking about it, but I don't think it's wise. So let's uh, let's.
0: We can take one more. Yeah. I think. Yeah.
1: Um, we have a lot of questions. How about, how about Mark? Uh, best uh, documentary, just to get some nonfiction. Ooh. Yeah.
3: Well
0: done.
3: Maestro. <laughs> <laughs> Every film. Does, does, the, that, does yeah. the Human Surge Three count as a yes. documentary? That'd be my, that would be my pick.
0: It's kind of hybrid, but we'll we'll accept it. <laughs>
3: yeah. Human Surge Three for being about very real stuff in increasingly surreal, uh, increasingly surreal ways, and from increasingly wow. surreal angles. Um, Devika,
0: I would say Youth Spring by Wang Bing, which I think is an incredible epic work of nonfiction set in a series of private garment workshops in China where, in in a a particular town, Zili in China, where a bunch of 20-somethings work and it really captures their life, which is just structured by the temporality and rhythm of relentless production. Um, And Frederick Wiseman, still at the top of his game with uh, menus Plaisirs Les Trois Gras.
1: Yeah. I think uh, I got that's it. Quite, that's pretty close. Uh, he's got French.
0: <laughs> Molly Molly, maybe is our French. Uh. I
2: don't remember the title, but it oh, yeah. sounds like
0: <laughs> Which but is...
2: Yeah. It. I'm, I'm long to see
0: it, but it's, it's a four... <laughs>
1: yeah. uh, but it's, but it, it goes real fast. Uh, 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 I'm like, <laughs> that's
2: why it goes fast. Huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, okay.
1: weirdly, like, I feel like it's a really, like we we did a talk with him and i think we said this there but uh it just seems re- it's like lean like mm. everything that's in the movie needs to be in the movie and you you're not bored but on the same note we also had Kleber Mendoza Fijo on the same on that panel and his film pictures of ghosts a documentary kind of a very personal semi autobiographical documentary or biography of a place recife his hometown um and via that cinemas that now derelict cinemas in that t- town um i thought that was a i thought that was a really interesting and
3: beautiful film documentary film adam kelly no i, I was being serious about human surge 3 oh
0: that's is, right you already said that yeah. sorry i meant molly yeah.
4: Yeah. Kelly would I, I mean I like again because I don't know how much time we have but I really really have to shout out I'm going to write about this film and it's not nonfiction, but um, the the films that I love were, were named Mark so I but yeah, I really want to open stage now say, say, I say your piece but I have to say like all Dirt roads, Taste of Salt it's oh, one okay. of the most beautiful yes. films that I've ever her and I it. love it love it love it she's in, first of all this director is, is really incredible she's like a writer a poet a photographer she does everything mm-hmm. and her photography is beautiful and her poetry is beautiful Raven Jackson. <laughs> yeah Raven Jackson and and so it's really difficult to say what it's about it's just like you know four decades in the life of this woman and um it's just i i don't have i mean Devika used this incredible phrase earlier where you were like it I don't even have the words to describe some of the feelings. I've never felt the feelings that mm. I felt maybe. Um, but I think it's a really beautiful film. And so I hope people seek that out when it mm. gets an official release soon, I think.
1: Are we just doing it open?
0: Yeah, open? I, mean, I- um, maybe any film that we didn't bring up that you quickly want to shout
2: out and then and then we'll wrap. Uh, I don't know, Molly. I like Janet's plan. It's oh, very yep. muted. I was going to yes. shout it out. Yeah, yes. that's what, that was one of my yeah. Shots. Yeah. Yes. Um, I haven't seen any of her plays. I, I I really want, she's basically a playwright and this is her first film. And Julianne Nicholson who Annie I'm, Baker is the director. Annie Baker, Anne. sorry. Um, I've always loved Julianne Nicholson as an actress and she's just fantastic here. And it's about a mother daughter. And, and the daughter is, is wonderful too. And it's just, it's episodic, and yet you. That's do my th-
1: Oscar-worthy performance. I think the daughter. You think, yeah, she's so Wh- good. Which one? The daughter. Yeah, oh, both the of them, are, but they're both great in it. The daughter. And incredible. also um,
3: Elias Kotias as the hippie yeah. Yeah. guru is yeah. like yeah, my, amazing. My, my, my personal rule is if he's in a movie, it's good movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Elias Kotias yeah, yeah. and Janet Planet's lovely. Yeah. a Wonderful movie. Yeah. so Yeah. Any other one more question? You want to I say? can't yeah. wait to see <laughs> the David Venture movie. Um, I I it. want
1: to shout out Martin Reitman's um, La Practica. Ooh. Just a very low key, but also I think uh, interesting and a movie that I've liked a lot. Um, and also in in keeping with Janet Planet, another movie that ends with, and uh, Evil Does Not Exist, another movie that has sort of like a mysterious yeah. and, and like sudden twist ending. Mm-hmm. that takes you out of the realism of the film.
0: All right. If, if we feel we've all said our pieces, we will, okay, we will wrap there. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Okay. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Eingy. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at
1: filmcomment.com.